Bibles tonight to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. And uh, if you need a Bible to follow along, you know what to do. Just uh, make some noise or something. Now, chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, as you know by now, speak of a period of time that's coming upon planet Earth called the Tribulation. It consists of three sets of seven events that span a seven-year period of time that translate into all heaven breaking loose on Earth. Of course, the first of all, the three seal judgments as the lamb jesus breaks the seals on the scroll the title deed to the earth and as each seal is broken judgment is poured out upon earth and then the seventh seal unfolds into seven trumpets seven angels each sounding a trumpet and at the sound of each trumpet again a corresponding judgment is poured out on planet earth And in our study last week, we heard the sounding of the seventh judgment, and we come to the midway point in this tribulation period. Now, we've seen it divided into two halves, 1260 days making up the first and 1260 days making up the second. 42 months on the one side, 42 months on the other. And three and a half years on the one and three and a half years on the other. All of those terms keep showing up to show to us that these halves of the tribulation are divided in two. And chapters 12 through 15 that we find ourselves in the midst of are all events that transpire in and around this seventh trumpet or this midway point of the tribulation time. Again, we don't come to the seven bold judgments which come out of the seventh trumpet until we get to chapter 16. So for these chapters, John is giving us revelation. He's unveiling, he's showing us things that are taking place in the middle of the tribulation. Now in chapter 12, which we studied last week, John saw a wonder in heaven. And that wonder was two things. First of all, a poetic summation of all of redemptive history. And second of all, a provocative picture of our spiritual enemy. He saw the woman, typical of Israel, who gave birth to a man-child who was Christ in the picture. And there was a dragon who sought to devour the man-child and keep him from performing his redemptive work. And we saw pictured in that God's victory in accomplishing the work of redemption for mankind. And we saw the fall and the destination of our enemy of Satan in his failed attempt to try to undo or frustrate God's plan. So chapter 12 was heaven's perspective of this spiritual redemption and also of this spiritual enemy that we have and what his destiny will be. As in the end of the chapter, Satan is cast out of heaven and there's found no more place for him. He's no longer able to traffic there. He can no longer accuse you and I before the father there at this point, you know, at the middle of the tribulation. But now as we come to chapter 13, 
we come to the second vision that John has that's associated with this midway point in the tribulation. If you'll just glance with me really quick at chapter 12, verse 1, it says that there appeared a great wonder in heaven. Notice that. That chapter 12 was all associated with what John was seeing taking place in heaven. But now, if you would flip your eyes over to chapter 13, verse 1, he writes and he says, And I stood upon now the sand of the sea. So chapter 13 was a heavenly vision of a heavenly scene. Chapter 13 is now the resulting earthly vision and the earthly scene. So chapter 12, from heaven's perspective, chapter 13, what happens now on earth as Satan is cast down. Now, as we read here, it says in verse 1 that John stood upon the sand of the sea and he saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, remember from last week's study, or you can just look back at verse 3 of chapter 12. John tells us that when he saw Satan in heaven... What he saw was a great red dragon that had seven heads and ten horns. That's what he saw when he looked at Satan. Now he sees arising out of the sea this beast, this indescribable creature, he says, that has seven heads and ten horns. Yet, though the description is the same between the dragon that we saw in chapter 12 and now the beast that we see in chapter 13, these are not identical in their uh, you, you know, identity and who they are. The way that we know that is because in verse 2 of chapter 13 here, it tells us that this beast got his power or his authority from the dragon. So if this seven-headed, ten-horned beast gets his power from the seven-headed, yes, ten-horned dragon, then the two things cannot be the same. We see that there is a distinction between what took place, this dragon in heaven, and this beast that is here on earth. So what then is this, who then is this beast that John sees here in chapter 13 arising out of the sea? It's the Antichrist. Antichrist doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean the Antichrist in the, in the sense of that he is, you know, the Antichrist, but rather that he is against Christ or that he is in place of Christ. That he is the substitution, the imitation, the, you know, the false brand, if you would. He's not the Christ, he's the imitation of Christ, he's the Antichrist. He gets his power from Satan. Now, the seven heads that it, he, John sees here, it tells us what these things are. When you look at chapter 17, verse 9, it tells us that these seven heads, I'll read it to you, chapter 17, verse 9. It says, that here is the mind that hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. So these seven heads speak to us of the location of Antichrist or this one world ruler that's coming upon the earth. It speaks to us about the seat or the place of his authority where his kingdom will be established. Now, historically, theologically, biblically, it is believed that the city of seven hills that is spoken of here is the same city of seven hills that we know of as Rome. That's right. 
it's most likely that that is the place that these seven heads speak of. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, and, and you know, I, I want to say this because, you know, it seems like Bobby comes up here teaching Daniel on Sunday mornings, and he says, in Revelation chapter, and here I am on, on Wednesdays, and I'm teaching Revelation, and I'm saying, in Daniel chapter, I just, I just want you to know that we did not plan this. We didn't say, hey, I'll do Revelation, you do Daniel, or vice versa, and, and it'll be a great dovetail between the two. We didn't plan this. But yet it's incredible that these two books do dovetail together so well. They really go hand in hand as far as the things that they reveal and, and help in interpreting the one, the other. But in the second chapter of Daniel, we have the story recorded there of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And, and you know the story. It's a famous one. He dreams and he's tormented and he can't find anyone that can interpret this dream. It was a statue that had a head that was pure gold. It had a chest and arms of silver. Belly and thighs of brass. Legs of iron and feet and toes that were a mixture of iron and clay. And Daniel, the only one that's given wisdom and, and revelation from God, comes to King Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him the meaning of the dream. He says, King, this statue that you saw essentially is a picture of future world history the things that will yet be you and your kingdom are the head of gold babylon represents the head of gold but after you there's going to be another kingdom that's inferior to your kingdom which is the chest and, and arms of silver and that was the medio or medes and the persians that were you know headed up by darius and then Daniel said that after them will come another kingdom, the Grecians. Alexander the Great being the kind of the, the spearhead of that movement, you know, the Grecian movement. That will be the, you know, the stomach and the legs that are made of uh, brass. You know, they won't have the same glory, the same power, but yet they, they certainly will be the dominant world power in their time. And then they will be followed by one more king. That will have the strength of iron in its legs. And that was typical of Rome that replaced the Grecian Empire. And so you have this flow of world history that took place. From Babylon to the Medes and the Persians to the Grecians and then to the Romans. And then there's something interesting in what Daniel says there in Daniel chapter 2 verse 40. Concerning this fourth world empire, the Romans. In verse 40 it says that the fourth kingdom speaking of Rome, shall be as strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all things, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Now, notice that in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, there was legs of iron. And then distinct from that, after that, were the feet that were iron mixed with clay. And yet in Daniel's interpretation, these Two separations are one and the same. They both still yet represent Rome. Rome in its former glory or the first strength of its kingdom was the legs of iron. In the, so much he says that it's strong and it breaketh all things together. 
But then there's a distinction. There's a separation between Rome in its former glory and Rome in its latter glory. And to the latter, he says that they will be iron mixed with clay. It will be partly strong, but it will be partly brittle. And it's also given this distinction that there will be ten toes. Now, of the, of the four empires that Daniel foretold, and listen, Daniel keeps talking about these four emperor, empires all the way throughout his prophecy. And of these four, three of them fell. The Babylonians fell to the Medes and Persians. The Medes and Persians fell to the Grecians. And the Grecians fell to the Romans. But Rome never fell. Well, it fell, but it, didn't, it wasn't taken over. It kind of was weakened. It became brittle, if you would. But Rome still exists today. The others are gone. They are, you know, assimilated into other societies. They've become new things. But Rome has simply become obsolete for the time. But they have not yet been destroyed. And there will yet be a reviving of the Roman Empire. The latter glory of this final kingdom is described as the ten toes that Daniel sees in this vision, or that Nebuchadnezzar saw, that Daniel interpreted. What does John see here in Revelation chapter 13 as he sees this beast rising out of the sea? It has how many heads and how many horns? The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the beast sits, the location of its empire. But what are these ten horns that it has? And what are the ten toes that Daniel sees in his vision? Well, the answer is that it speaks of Antichrist's kingdom and the revival of the Roman Empire. But the answer to the question of what are these ten horns, what are those ten toes? To that we look at Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision. And it's a completely different vision than the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. But yet in the vision, he sees four animals. And as the vision is interpreted to him, he learns that those four animals represent the same four kingdoms that were in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He sees, first of all, a lion, which he is told represents Babylon, the king, the head of gold. Then he sees a bear that represents the Medes and the Persians. Then he sees a leopard, which represents Greece or the Grecians. And then finally, he sees this fourth beast, this fourth animal. And he doesn't associate it with any animal that you and I have ever seen or heard of or that anybody ever has. He calls it a beast. He says it was unlike anything I've ever seen. It was indescribable by anything in nature. It was another beast, and it was representative of Rome, this fourth world kingdom. Now, Daniel had no problem at all with the first three. He understood lions, leopards, and bears. Oh, my. You know, that was no problem for him. But he was curious about what is this fourth beast that no one's ever seen before. What was that about? And so Daniel, he prays about it. He continues to ask God to show him what these things are. And so in verse 19, Daniel tells us, he said, Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that has eyes and a mouth that spoke very great things. 
whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So all of that is Daniel's prayer. He says, God, help me understand what is this fourth beast that did all of these things? And the answer is given to him in verse 23. The answer is, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth. It will be worldwide. It will be global. And it shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Listen, verse 24 gives us our answer. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first. And he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High. Any ideas who this is yet? Antichrist. The same character that's being revealed to us in our study. He shall speak great words against the Most High. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand. Listen. Until a time and times And the dividing of time. How long is that? That's right. Three and a half years. So it's very clear in Daniel's prophecy. Who it is that's being spoken of in Revelation chapter 13. This beast that arises up out of the sea. That has the seven heads and the ten horns. It is the emperor or the antichrist. Whose empire will be a revived form of the roman empire that will be global in its government headed by 10 divisions or 10 kings but he will be more stout and greater than all of them in his power and what he is able to do and so we see here that this chapter it's all about the antichrist and all about his kingdom which comes to the fullness of its power here at the midway point of the tribulation Now, it's been in its formation and in its structuring and in its preparation all the way throughout the first three and a half years of the tribulation. But it's here at this point, after the two witnesses have been killed in Jerusalem, after this man goes into the temple of God, proclaims that he himself is God and demands that he is worshipped, it is then that he is given full authority To do as he wills upon planet earth without any reservation or any opposition for a period of exactly three and a half years or 42 months. Not three and a half years and one day or three and a half years and two weeks. No, he has a set period of time that he will be given this authority to operate in this capacity. So it tells us there, if you look at verse 2, it says in Revelation 13 that the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. Now listen, because you're going to hear similarities. And his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Now what this tells us right here very clearly is that this is the key to unlock Daniel chapter 7. Because remember, Daniel 7 is a vision of those four beasts. He saw a lion, he saw a bear, he saw a leopard, and he saw a beast that he couldn't describe. What is John seeing here? A beast that he can't describe that bears the likeness of a lion, of a bear, and of a leopard. 
So obviously, these two things go together. They are one in the same as far as what they are seeking to reveal to us. Now, what is this here that it says? Because this isn't the lion, the bear, and the leopard. He says that it, it has the, you know, the, the mouth like a lion, the feet like, or, you, you know, it, was, it looked like a leopard. It had feet like the bear, and it had the mouth of a lion. Well, what does this mean? He's giving to us the characteristics and the attributes of Antichrist's empire. It's going to have the stature of Babylon. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. Worldwide influence and dominance. Fame throughout all the world. It was worldwide known and it will have that stature, Antichrist kingdom. It will also possess the fierceness of the Medes and the Persians, as we saw that he will subdue all things and that nothing will stand before him. The kingdom will have the swiftness of the Grecians. Alexander the Great was unstoppable. Kings and whole societies would lay down their arms before him and just give themselves in surrender because they knew there were no match. And that will be the characteristic of Antichrist's uh, you know, dominance. And he will bear with him also the power of the iron of the Roman Empire. So it will be the glory of all of the kingdoms of the world given into the hand of one empire that is headed by one man. Now, I want you to listen to that again. It will be all of the glory of the kingdoms of the world given to one man. Why is that significant? Because look at the next words that John says. It says that the dragon gave him his power. Pause with me right there. All the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them given to one man for one kingdom. Does that sound like anything else we've heard maybe three or four times already in our study of the book of Revelation? Do you recall Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was being tempted for those 40 days and 40 nights? What Satan said to him? Luke chapter, I think it's verse, uh, chapter 4 verse 5. It says that the devil took him up into a high mountain and he showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The glory, the power of Babylon. The fierceness, the destruction of the Medes and the Persians. The swiftness of the Grecians and the power of Rome. He showed him all the glory of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And listen to verse 6. It says, and the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee. And the glory of them, for it is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. And I've pointed out to you already, and you know yourselves, that Jesus didn't contend with Satan over this statement. He didn't say, no, you don't have the authority to do that, and it's not in your hand to do it. Jesus simply responded by saying, no, you will worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. And he refused this easy offer that Satan was giving to him. But the fact of the matter is that Satan does possess the power to grant to whoever he will the power and the authority and the glory of the kingdoms of the world. And there is coming a day when he is going to give all of the power and the authority and the glory of the kingdoms of the world into the hand of one man. And that is going to be a scary day. And what we will see in, well, we won't see it except from heaven's perspective, but what the world will see 
as Antichrist comes into the fullness of his power, is literally Satan incarnate. Just as the real Christ, Jesus Christ, was God incarnate, the demonstration of who the Father was, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. So also, Antichrist will be Satan incarnate. Everything that Satan is, and what's amazing is we'll see, is that the world is going to flock to him, worship him, adore him, love him. The dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. It says, and I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, of the four empires of Daniel chapter 2, and and what we saw in Daniel chapter 7, every empire has an emperor. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was over the Babylonians. Darius was over the Medes and the Persians. Alexander was over the Grecians. But Rome, distinctly, didn't have a singular emperor like all of the others. Over Rome, there were the Caesars. You know, as you follow their history all the way through until they were kind of disbanded, you know, there were Caesars. There was a multitude of them that were over them. And some have suggested that during the tribulation, as this kingdom is coming into fruition, that the world is going to be divided into these ten sections. And in fact, you could go online and you could kind of type something like that into a Google search and you can actually see how they've divided, you know, the world into these 10 different sections that during Antichrist's reign will be ruled over by a a governor or a king, if you would, that will have charge over those places. But all of them will give their authority into the hand of the beast. We'll see this happen during that time. But it tells us here that there will be a wound inflicted in some manner to this antichrist perhaps an assassination attempt something to try to take him down but miraculously he'll recover from it and it says that the whole world will wonder after the beast because of this and it says that they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like unto the beast and who is able to make war with him And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things, and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue for forty and two months. So, the fullness of his power and of his dominion will be the second half of the tribulation time. You recall when Jesus was speaking of the last days to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24. Right around verse 14, Jesus said, When you shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. He says, Let them that are in Judea flee unto the mountains. And he gave them strong words. Don't go back into the house and take anything out of the house. You know, don't go back into the field and say, I left something in the field. And he said, woe unto them that are, you know, with babies in those days that are nursing, you know, and and he says, woe unto those or anybody if it's on the Sabbath day. And then he says these words, he says, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not from the foundation of the world, nor ever shall be again. In this time when Antichrist is granted this dominion and this authority, it will be tribulation and woe upon planet earth in a way that has never been known, and yet never will be again. 
but it will be for a measured period of time, three and a half years, 42 months as he is there. And it says that it was given, or in verse 6, it says that he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So he's going to slander not only the God that we serve, the God of heaven, but also his tabernacle, his dwelling place. And not only that, but it says them that dwell in heaven. Antichrist is going to be a man that is able to solve all the world's problems. He's certainly going to have to answer some really tough questions. What happened to all those people that disappeared? What's the story with that? And he's not going to be a rambling politician that just says, oh, well, the people that disappeared, uh, uh, you know, and and then be able to just kind of spin it in some way and change the subject and never give a straight up answer. He's going to give an answer. And he's going to give an answer so clear and so seemingly precise and so seemingly right on that the world will say, man, this guy really has it all together. I believe that at that point when he is confronted with that question, he will pull out the Bible. And I believe he's going to open to the Gospel of Matthew. And as he opens there in Matthew chapter 13, he's going to read to them the parable of the wheat and the tares. You know the story. Jesus said that a man sowed good seed in his field. But at night an enemy came and sowed weeds or tares among the wheat. And it was discovered as the things began to grow that there were weeds among the wheat. And and the the servants of the farmer said, well, should we go in and kind of root out all of those weeds? And the good farmer said, no, don't do that, lest you also destroy some of the good wheat while you do it. But let them grow together until the harvest. And then at the time of the harvest, it said, he said to all of his reapers, go out and gather all of the wheat into the barns, but the tares destroy and burn with unquenchable fire well later on the disciples they came to jesus and they didn't get it they said lord declare unto us the parable of the wheat and the tares help us to understand and he said that the good seed are the children of the kingdom that's you and i he said the tares the weeds are the children of the enemy and he said that While, you know, the world is going on, these two things are kind of being sewn together in the same field. And and if you try to figure out which ones are the wheat, which ones are the tares, you're likely to make a wrong move and cut down the wrong one. So he said, let them all grow together. But he says this, Matthew chapter 13. I thought I put one of these uh, little post-its that helped me turn. Hey, I turned right there. Praise God. Matthew chapter 13 As he gives this interpretation, he says, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. Now listen, because this is going to be Antichrist's explanation for what happened to those people that disappeared. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things uh, that offend. Those offensive, bigoted, narrow-minded Christians. 
and them which do iniquity, those hypocrites that claim to be holy and righteous, but yet lived in indulgence. And in verse 42, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then, this is Antichrist's shining moment as he reads verse 43. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the world will wonder after the beast as he blasphemes God, blasphemes his dwelling place, and blasphemes those that dwell in heaven. Yes, we are the righteous ones. They were bigoted and narrow-minded. We hated them, you know. They'll declare. He'll blaspheme them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him, verse 7, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Now, it says here that, that he will, it'll be given to him to make war with the saints. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought the saints were gone by now. It doesn't the rapture happen prior to this period of, uh, of tribulation coming? Then who are these saints that he's given power over here in verse 7? Well, it absolutely is not the church. How do we know that? Because it says there very clearly that he will be given power to overcome them, or if you would, to prevail against them. Jesus... In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he was talking to Peter about the future church, he said to him, upon this rock, I will build my church. And he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, will not overcome it. Well, here we see that the saints are being overcome. It's got to be a different group of saints because Jesus said that Satan would never be given power over his church very clearly. Also, it says uh, there at the end of um, verse 9, it says that if any man have an ear, let him hear. Well, listen, every other time when he was talking to the church, he says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't know if you've noticed this, but ever since we crossed the barrier into chapter 4, the church has never been mentioned once. Never again has it been referenced. Why? Because the church isn't on earth during this time. Well, then who are these saints? It's the people that get saved after the rapture. It's those that respond to the message that's preached of the 144,000 that were sealed back in chapter 7. It is the 144,000 that were sealed back in chapter 7. How do we know? Because in chapter 14, verse 1, they're dead and in heaven. He overcomes them. He's granted power over them. It's not the church that he overcomes, it's the tribulation saints, those that get saved after the rapture and that are following the Lord after that time that he will overcome. And in verse 8 it says that all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, there is a doctrine that's held in some areas of the church today that I believe is borderline blasphemy. And that is, it's called the limited knowledge of God. And that is that God really, he didn't know what Adam was going to do. When, when he set Adam in the garden, he put him there and he gave him the trees. And God was kind of just standing back and waiting to see what was going to happen. But God didn't really know what was going to happen there. 
And that once Adam went and partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sinned, then God had to come up with the plan of redemption. You know, now we got to do something about this. Otherwise, he's just going to go off into, you know, oblivion and, and, and he'll be in an eternal separation. And so we got to come up with a plan. It also teaches that God doesn't know what each person individually is going to choose concerning their relationship with him during their lives. That he, he waits and he just kind of lets things play out. And those that choose him, he accepts them. But he doesn't really know who's going to choose him until they actually choose him. He's limited in his knowledge. Well, I have a problem with that. First of all, because right here it says, it speaks of the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That means that from before the foundation of the world, the lamb was already slain. Meaning that the plan of redemption was already in place prior to the creation of Adam. Why would God have a plan of redemption in place prior to the creation of Adam if God didn't know what Adam was going to do? God knew full well what Adam was going to do, and it was through the plan of redemption that God would reveal his love to his creation. So God's not limited in his knowledge at all. The second thing it tells us there is that the names of those that would be saved were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. We know that it's speaking of that in context because when you read chapter 17, verse 8, it speaks of those who were not written in the book of life. So there's a clear contrast there. It gives us the definitive that God wrote the names of those that would be saved in his book prior to them ever being born, which means that he already knew the choices that people were going to make before they even made them. Well, someone's going to ask the question then, well, that presents a problem. Because does that then mean if God knew all along these things and the names were written in the book before the foundation of the world, then does that mean that God actually appointed those whose names were not written to go to hell? That God created people with the express intent of giving them a destiny in eternal separation and torment? Is that the heart of God? No, that's not what it means. What it means is that God knew from the beginning who it was that would choose him. And those whom he knew would choose him were written in the book. And those whom he knew would not choose him and would refuse him unto death, he didn't write them in his book. Because God is omniscient, which means that God is all-knowing. There's nothing that God doesn't know. From the beginning of time to the end, there is nothing that's hidden from his mind and from his heart. Now, at the same time, we still yet have free will. We're not robots. There's no light switch in us that God flips and he says, okay, well, now I'm going to make them choose for me. And I go from I'm rebelling against God to all of a sudden now I'm not rebelling against God. I don't know what happened. Something happens, like something went off and said, and that's not the way it works. God designs us and he gives us absolute free moral will. We can choose and make whatever choices we want. But God in his omniscience knows the choices that we're going to make before we even make them. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Billy Graham. And, and, and you know, I, I just was kind of trying to picture what it's going to be like to be Billy Graham or, you know, any of the great men that God has used uh, throughout world history, you know, Spurgeon or Peter, you know, or, or any of these people. What's it going to be like when, when all that they did is put up on the screen, and, and we're kind of there, sitting there, watching all that they accomplished. 
All of the souls that were saved as a byproduct of their ministry. All of the fruit that was born and produced through the work that they did unto the Lord. And, and all the blessing that they had on earth because of the work that they did. And how God was just with them and blessing them and all of that. We're going to see all of that. And, and I was thinking, you know, God knows or knew all of that before they were even born. Their destiny and all that they will have in heaven and will have accomplished on earth was already written in God's chronicles before any of them were born. But yet, being not a Billy Graham, please, or a, you know any of those things, I also realize, and so also do you, that the course that our lives take are the result of the decisions that we make, aren't they? And that at any point, Billy Graham could have chosen something different. Peter the Apostle could have chose to go east instead of west at a certain point that turned out to be a transforming moment in his life that bore tons of fruit for the kingdom of God. Any of us have choices in the matters that we make, and yet God is fully aware of those choices that we're going to make before we even make them, and therefore he is able to write the things in his book before they happen. The verse that defines all of this is Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Now listen to it carefully. God says, or Paul says, whom he did foreknow. That means he foreknew it. He knew it beforehand. Those whom he knew beforehand. Them he also did predestinate. To be conformed into the image of his son. See, so those that were written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. Were written there because God foreknew the decisions and the choices that they would make. See, if you want to be one whose name is written in the book of life, choose them. The ball is in your court. Again, in Romans 10, it says that all day long he has stretched out his hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. All those that come to me, I will in no wise cast out, he says. And the ball is completely in your court. Do you want to know if you're chosen by God? If your name is in his book? There's one way to find out. Choose him. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. It's like a grand archway. And on one side of the grand archway, the words are inscribed in it. Come unto me or whosoever will let him come. And as you pass through and respond to the invitation that's given you to come and you go underneath this grand archway, as you turn around and you look at the reverse side, the words are inscribed. Behold, I have chosen you from the foundation of the world. And the two things work together perfectly. We can't understand it in our finite minds. And we think that God's the one who's an unintelligent. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And this is an exhortation, a word of encouragement to those that are saints being overcome and worn out during the tribulation time. They are being led into captivity and so will their captors. They are being killed with the sword, but yet so will their captors. And they are called upon to be patient and to wait and to believe. And then in verse 11, he says, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. 
And he exerciseth all of the power of the first beast, which was before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. What we have here is the completion of what will be the unholy trinity during the great tribulation. You have the dragon, Satan, who gives his power and authority to this beast, this antichrist, this incarnation of him, if you would. And then you have this false prophet that will arise upon the scene that will be able to do miracles and wonders and give glory and honor to the beast. And it's a perfect picture, the antithesis of who God is in his triune authority. The father who brought forth the son and sends the spirit to bear witness to the son. Now you have the dragon who sends the antichrist and the false prophet to bear witness to the antichrist. Incredible how Satan counterfeits everything that God designs in such a, 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 an incredible way in this thing. But then it says that he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now Jesus said, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians concerning, uh, you know, Antichrist and the deception that he would bring to the world. He said this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That he will come with deceivableness of unrighteousness and that God is going to give people over to believe the lie because they didn't receive the love of the truth. And it tells us here that he does these great wonders so much that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and that it deceives them because of the miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Did you know that miracles do not produce faith? People say that if God would just show me a sign, God, if you just show me in some way, show me a sign that you're real, I'll believe you. But do you know, and I'm telling you this, if God showed you a sign, you wouldn't believe it. You would find some way to rationalize it, or you might believe it for a day, but after a day goes by and the memory of it becomes even somewhat fuzzied in your thinking, and that sign no longer exists or becomes a part of ancient history, you will cease to believe. I guarantee it. I'll tell you why, because I've seen God do some incredible things in my life. I mean, I don't have time to like try to get into some of the stories, but there have been things that God has done that there is no possible way they could have happened by any type of natural circumstance. And yet a year or a month or even a day sometimes after something like that happens, I can forget God completely. The children of Israel saw the Red Sea open. I don't know how much more of a sign you get than that. They saw bread come out of heaven. They saw water come out of a rock. They saw the earth open up its mouth and swallow 24,000 guys that were rebelling against, uh, you know, the authority of Moses. They saw all the miracles and the plagues that God brought upon the land of Egypt. And yet, what did that produce in them? 
God says, now you've seen all my works. Go in and possess the land. And they said, no, we'll die. We'll never survive. We're like grasshoppers before them. There's giants in there. Do you know what giants can do to us? Why? Because the miracles that they saw didn't produce any real faith in them at all. Meanwhile, there was one woman in the city of Jericho that had a very questionable lifestyle at best. And when the two spies that came in to check out the city and make a plan of attack came to the house of this woman, Rahab, she saw their faces and she turned white as a ghost. And she said, our entire city is petrified of your God. Why? Because we have heard all the things that he did to the Egyptians and to Sihon and Og, the king of the Amorite, you know, and, and all these things that she said, she didn't see the Red Sea open or manna fall from heaven or water come out of the rock or any of the other things that God did. There was no sign given to her at all. What she did is she heard the things that God had did and it produced in her faith so much so that she hid the spies and she will be in heaven according to the testimony of the Bible because of the faith that she had, not from what she saw, but from what she heard. And you and I have been given the testimony of the word of God. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't come by seeing. Seeing is deceiving. Antichrist will come and do miracles. And the faith that is produced from them will cause Satan worship and allegiance to the beast. But the faith that we are called to is respond to what we have heard. He will have power to deceive those on the earth, not by the words that he speaks, but by the miracles and the signs that he is able to do. We're almost out of time. I have this incredibly interesting uh, thing that I want to share with you. I just really don't have time to share it with you. Um, Okay. (laughs) But you got to be patient with me. You got to give me an extra... Three or four minutes at the end, okay? Much of the modern electrical technology that we enjoy today as a society roots back to the Einsteinian intelligence of a man named Nikola Tesla. Perhaps you've heard that name before. The inventor of the AC motor. Much of the x-ray technology that we use in the medical field stemmed from his research. The fundamental devices of the systems for wireless communications. That means all the things that we carry around with us, our cell phones and the, you know, the convenience that we enjoy. He is credited with the invention of those things. He lived from 1856 to 1943. So his research and development predates the inception of these things by many years. He's credited with the legal priority for the invention of radio. And the rumor, many rumors associated with this man, but one of them is that he came up with a system of wireless electricity that would be so cheap and so easy that it was suppressed even in its concept because of the damage it would do to that whole sector of the economy, the energy sector of the economy. Free wireless electricity in unlimited capacity. He invented devices for providing extremely low level of resistance for the passage of electrical current. Now, I know that's Greek to many of us. It would be Greek to me, uh, you know, but I know a little bit about the trades. But if you know anything about electricity, electricity will follow the 
path of least resistance. Which means if you touch a piece of copper with electricity and a piece of rubber, which one does the electricity go through? The copper, because there's less resistance. It can get to ground faster. And he invented devices for providing extremely low level of resistance for the passage of electrical current. And that this resulted in preliminary work. And I know this sounds so science fiction, you're probably going to want to get up and walk out. But for a global death ray. You know, the ability to use energy that's already trapped in our atmosphere and provide a low level path of resistance in such a way that you can literally mark the point of a lightning strike in some capacity in some way. Well, this man, Tesla, he died in 1943 in a hotel in New York City, and all of his research, all of his papers were confiscated by the United States government and shut up in top secret location. None of his research, none of his work has ever been disclosed except for, you know, some of the things that, uh, you know, like your cell phone, that kind of stuff. But none of his real work, you know. Now, there's an organization that uh, is run by the U.S. government, but their research facility is in the, an isolated part of Alaska. It's Gakona, Alaska. And if you Google Gakona, Alaska, put it into Google Earth, and you look at the satellite photos, you can actually see that there is a plot of land that's larger than a football field that is just antennas, equidistant, these incredibly uh, unique-looking things that are, have, have a very specific outline, very pattern, very symmetrical in their placement. And, and they're just sitting there in this thing. And the organization is called HARP, H-A-A-R-P, High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program. And nobody knows what they're doing or what it's for or what it's about and all the rest. But the rumors and the conspiracy theories are way beyond anything you could even imagine. They go from the somewhat reasonable to the you're doing LSD, you know, in their, uh, you know, in in all of of their things that they're presenting. But when you piece together all the research and all the hypothesis and the curiosity behind what all of this is, it becomes very curious. What is it that they're actually doing? They're in this deserted tundra of Alaska with these things. Now, if it is what people are putting forth that it is, then it could well be that what we're reading about here in this deceptive sign that Antichrist has power to do to call down fire from heaven in the sight of those that ask him to, it could be that there's a link. I don't know. You know, I just wasted four or five minutes of your time giving you that theory, you know, that hypothesis. But it's interesting, isn't it, just to think about it. Verse 15, well, we didn't finish 14 yet. It says that he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. So he calls for the erection, the establishing of an idol or some image that represents and typifies this beast. And he demands that all of the world give their, their allegiance and their worship to this image. And by the way, this is going to be the thing that causes the Jews to realize that he is not their Messiah. Because up till this point, they're going to believe that this is actually their Savior, their Messiah. But when he sets up an idol in the temple of all places and demands that people bow and worship an idol... Well, let me tell you something that's deeply ingrained in the blood of every Jew. Guess what it is? Commandment numero uno. (laughs) You shall not worship an idol, right? And they will realize at this point that, no, this is a contradiction. This isn't right. 
and it will be part of what wakes them up. And he had power, verse 15, to give life unto the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. By the way, this is a great time uh, for you, not now here, but you know tonight or sometime, to go and read Daniel chapter 3, which was essentially Nebuchadnezzar's response to Daniel's interpretation. Remember the, the image, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron? Nebi responded to that image in chapter 3 by making a statue that was all gold. He was saying, no, 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 no. There ain't going to be no second empire. And when you read that story and you see what took place there, it was a perfect prefiguring of what we're seeing here in this time. 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, 6 musical instruments that were set there to play at the time when he appointed 666. The nations, the people of Babylon, the nations of the world called to bow down to the image that he had made. The penalty for failing to comply was death. The parallels are numerous when you read through and you look at chapter 13 of Revelation and chapter 3 of Daniel. It's a great picture of what it will be like during the tribulation time. But he causeth all, small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And herein is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is six hundred, threescore, and six, or six Six, six. Now, no doubt the technology for this already exists. In fact, we're way past that. You know, I remember when I first got saved, um, you know, right about 1998, and this stuff was just starting to surface. You know, that, that there would be a time when, you know, your daughter would, would, you know, be protected at college by a chip and planted under her skin. I remember reading that in Newsweek, you know, and all this. And, and, and this was like, wow, this is crazy. All these things are starting to happen. Well, here we are, you know, 10, 15 years after all these things started being talked about. And this is like old school now. You know, this is like they could have done this a long time ago. It isn't even that exciting. You know, this technology is here. I remember during the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, there was a commercial for IBM. And this guy walks into a department store and he looks really like, uh, like he's up to no good. You know, and he's kind of looking over his shoulder and he's standing there. And then, you know, nobody's in the aisle and he grabs something off the shelf and he puts it in his jacket. And then he, you know, kind of discreetly moves through the store. And then as he walks out the store and he passes the security guard, the security guard looks at him and he says, thank you for your purchase, Mr. Stevens. And then it said, you know, then it was just a caption that said, IBM, the future is here or something like that. You know, and the point was that, hey, you're not going to need cash. It's not going to be the thing. You'll just go get what you want. You'll be, you know, you'll have the mark or the chip or whatever it is. Your identity will be protected. Your finances will be secure. Your transactions will be protected, you know, and, and we understand this technology. But this, what we're reading here, will be more than simply embracing technology. 
Because when you get to chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, if you just flip over, it says that the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. And what this is saying is that by a person receiving this mark or taking this number or this identity upon themselves, it's more than just signing up for a credit card. You understand? You're pledging allegiance to Antichrist's kingdom. You're bowing the knee and worshiping him and in so doing, forfeiting your right of salvation. You're sealing your, your destiny by this. It says that he that takes the mark will be partaker of the wrath of God, which means that you are damned. You cannot be saved should you take this mark. So this is more than just embracing technology. Now, think about this for a minute. Because we have phones, you know, and, and I just got one of these phones. And the thing, it's like, you know, it's like this big, but it's more sophisticated than my laptop, you know. And, and the thing is a camcorder. It's a 8 megapixel camera. It's a GPS device. It's a scanner. It's a gaming device. It's an iPod. It's basically a PC. It does Everything that you could possibly want it to do, and I don't know anything about it yet. You know, how, how, all, all of what it can do, you know, and, and all of that. You know, here, it's talking about a little chip so you can buy things. You know, the technology that we have is way beyond what he's talking about here. But what's amazing about this is that this was written 2,000 years ago. John didn't have an iPhone. You know, you understand? He didn't have like direct connect or texting or anything like that. Or, or even a banking system that could electronically transfer funds instantaneously. None of that existed in his time. And he's just saying, hey, I saw there was a mark. It was implanted in the forehead or in the thing. You couldn't buy or sell unless you had it. 2,000 years ago was this written. What's even more amazing than that is though this was written 2,000 years ago, we live in the first time that it's ever been possible that something like this could happen. And we hear about it happening. That's amazing. Because this is end time stuff we're talking about here. This is like clear common sense proof of the days that we're living in. The signs of the time. It can almost become so plain to us that we just miss it. We really have heard about that. The mark of the beast and all that. Well, we got to close. What is it that God wants us to see as we go through this chapter? Because there's a lot of information. And, you know, I never feel worse when I go home from a teaching is when I've given a lot of information and I don't really know why. <laughs> what is it? What is it? What we see in this chapter is Antichrist. This whole chapter is all about this man Antichrist in his dominion and in his kingdom. In place of... Of Christ. That's what it means. It's what the world will be given in place of Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 43. He said, I am come in my father's name. And you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name. Him you will receive. Jesus came and he showed us the father. He came as a servant. The Bible says that he dwelt among us. That means he entered into our lives. He tasted our suffering and our temptation. 
No matter what it is that you're going through, in some way, to some capacity, and probably further than you, he's gone through it. He's tasted it. He's experienced it so that he can relate to you in it and you can experience the fellowship of his sufferings. He didn't stop there, but he told us truth. He revealed God to us. He revealed our history and he revealed our destiny. He told us everything. He said, I've told you plainly all things that have been shown to me, I have made clear to you. He laid down his life and suffered brutally so that he could redeem us, so that we could be saved. He traded places with us. He took our punishment and what our sin deserved so that we could inherit his life and his glory and we could have fellowship with him for eternity. And he gave us promise that he was going to come back and that he would receive us to himself, even sparing us from the tribulation that would come upon the earth. That's all that Jesus did when he came. And he said, I am coming in my Father's name, and you receive me not. But he said, there is another coming. He's coming in his own name. And he said, him you will receive. Antichrist, it says of him in Daniel eleven thirty seven that he shall not regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor will he regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He is coming to bring the world into bondage and lay a shackle and a chain upon those that dwell upon the earth. His authority will be established by cruelty. His doctrine will be to indulge your flesh and do what you want. And ultimately, his followers will be lost forever. The point is this. Every human being that ever lives will bow their knee to one Or to the other. There is no such thing as neutral. There's no one that can claim and say, well, I am outside of that. You know, I don't, I'm not going to give my life to Christ. And certainly I'm not going to fall for the ploy, the deception of Antichrist. Listen, you can't do that. Because by creation and the way God made you, you are going to and you are bowing the knee to somebody. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 2 and 3, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he said that that wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also, listen, we all had our lifestyle in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And that is very clear. He's saying that if you are not bowing the knee to Jesus Christ, you are already bowing the knee to Antichrist. You are in bondage to the lusts and the dictates of your flesh, and you are in bondage. You think that you're free, but you're really just ordering off a menu. He doesn't care how you dress. Choose how you want to dress. He doesn't care what you like to watch or the kind of music that you like to listen to. Listen, it's all under his hand. It's all in control. You like it? Fine, do it. He doesn't care who you're sleeping with or who you're living with. All he cares about is that you continue to reject and deny Jesus Christ. The rest is just details. But you are bowing the knee to Antichrist. Listen. Realize the contrast. Who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he desires for your life, for your eternity. And realize the penalty if you continue 
to bow the knee to this world system, to this world's ruler, to this world's prince. In the name of personal moral choice, listen, you're foolish. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. We are in need of his salvation. Understand, church, if you do not receive the love of Jesus Christ, you will receive the deception that's coming and already is. May God give us wisdom. May we not be those that surrender and give ourselves to this world or its system, but that we might surrender and bow the knee to Jesus and live in his name. Let's all stand. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. I pray, Lord, that the things that we've heard would have an impact on our tomorrow and on the hope and the the very demeanor that we carry. We ask that you would go with us, that you would bless us. We ask that you would continually give us revelation, that you would speak to us and show us those areas of our lives that we have yet to give into your hand. And that we would trust you in all things. You said, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us that liberty and the glory of being called the sons and daughters of the living God. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.